The value of the life is the culture that the people who are involved with Gift of Life are involved. If I bring them a way to help a life, they'll go for it. I find that we live in a good world, not a bad world, because if you just give people the chance to help, most people are pretty good. Welcome everyone to the Ask a CEO Show. Ask a CEO interviews bring us inside the corner office and C-suite for discussions with top executives about their journey to leadership and the reality of running their companies today. Our host, Greg Demetrio, is the CEO of Lorraine Gregory Communications, an award-winning integrated marketing company. He is also the founder of gregscorneroffice.com, the home of the Ask a CEO interviews. Greg has been in the business for over 30 years. He is a resource to the media, an invited columnist and speaker on marketing and business topics. Over the years, Greg has talked to hundreds of CEOs and executives about what it took to make it to the corner office and what it is really like being the leader of their companies. And now he brings those conversations to you. Here's Greg now. Welcome everybody to another Ask a CEO show. I'm Greg Demetrio, your host. My day job is CEO of Lorraine Gregory Communications, but my real passion is talking to CEOs from around the world about their journey to the corner office and what it's like running their organizations. Today we have a very special guest and the conversation is going to be a little bit different. Mr. Robbie Dono was the principal of Dono Carding, a solid waste management company, and he's been around Long Island for more than a week. More than a week. Uh, he was at Dono Carding from 1970 to 1997. He was the vice president of the Eastern Waste Association of New York from 97 to 99. And he's now the principal of LEMCOR in Newark, New Jersey. He's been a leader in solid waste management for over 50 years. He's received so many awards for his leadership in the industry and his philanthropic endeavors. He joined the Manhasset Rotary Club in 1971 and eventually became its president in 75. In 1975, he created something called the Gift of Life, which is now the Gift of Life International, and he was its first chairman. His leadership at the Gift of Life was noted in a book called Leadership by Example by Dr. Chopra, and that incorporated the 10 key principles of all great leaders. Excellent book, by the way. The Gift of Life received prominent recognition also in a book called The Lady in Red. And the Lady in Red, if you remember, was Nancy Reagan. And she highlighted the Gift of Life, which became one of her key focuses in her philanthropy. So, Robbie, you've been a part of Gift of Life for 45 years. This is going to be a very interesting conversation, I think. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's, it's a show that I like because I get to be people like yourself, uh, we're in our studio today, which is a little unusual. Thank you for coming in, by the way. Uh, we've been doing most of these by Zoom, and this is so refreshing, I can't tell you. Uh, but thanks for coming down. Now, how do you go from a private sanitation man to somebody who does heart surgery? Actually, uh, the two aren't completely separate, uh, if you really think about it. Uh, the mentality of somebody in the solid waste business, uh, with Dono Company, we were serving 55,000 homes every day. Um, the garbage is out in the street and it has to be put, picked up. So your mentality is that there's an urgency to what you have to do. There's logistics involved, there's equipment involved. You have to coordinate with municipalities and political people that's involved. 
When you now are switching that to heart surgery, what are you doing? There's an urgency, there's equipment, there's government buy-in, there's training, all of those facets that we build at our skills to run a solid waste company are the same principles that end up All right, so being now we've, we've set surgery. the stage for how this conversation is going to go because people don't realize that much about the Gift of Life International. But what it is is bringing third world children for heart surgery and going to the third world so that they get critical heart surgery. But Robbie's got a professional background that's very interesting all by itself. So maybe you can tell us a little bit of your backstory on the personal side and how you wound up in Dono Carding, your history in Dono Carding, and, and the beginning of the Manhasset Rotary Club. Well, they're all interrelated as well. Uh, my father started Dono Company uh, with his two older brothers in 1932. So this was a depression era kind of thing, and they, at the time, he and his two older brothers were doing anything that they could to make money for the family. Mm -hmm. And it didn't matter whether they were hauling wood or hauling garbage or paving roads or whatever. His brothers ended up working for Grumman. He ended up putting his older brother through college, and he became a vice president in one of Grumman's enterprises. And my father kept the garbage business. He had left school when he was 14 in the seventh grade and just continued on with the business. I came into the business in 1970, 1970. Uh, but I worked on the garbage truck. My father was very old school. Um, he was also in a diner business. He had five diners on Long Island. So when I was even before the diners I worked, I was a, I was a uh, newspaper boy. And then I worked in the diners as a uh, dishwasher and busboy and cleaned all the stuff up. And No instant executive, huh? No instant executive. And when I was 16, I started working on a garbage truck and uh, as shaper. So I didn't have a route. Whoever didn't show up to work that day, we had 100-something people, 130 people working for us. So I would take the place of anybody that was sick or on vacation. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I was on a different route every day. So I learned all the routes. I learned how to drive the truck. I learned all the business. My father um, would tell me, you know, like 16, you want to go to the beach during the summer. And he'd say, you know, someday you may run this company. And he says, when you do, he says, I want you to appreciate the people that work for you. So when it's snowing out, I want you to feel the snow going down your neck. I want you to smell the stink of the garbage in the, in the summertime and those cans that have the holes in the bottom and leak, you know, the you soup. Know. And the maggots come on you. He says, you have to go through all of that because you'll never be able to appreciate the people the that people. work for you unless you go through what they do. So when you go out on a route and you work, you're not the boss's son anymore. You're just another worker. You do what they do. And that's how I started in the garbage business. Interesting. I have two kids in our business here, and that's pretty much what happened to them. You have to learn it from the bottom up. The bottom up. You've got to know um, who, you're who you're telling what to do and appreciate that they're doing it for you. So it's very interesting. But the garbage industry is just interesting all by its own self because it was so, back in the day now, we're talking about organized crime being such a heavy presence in the carding industry. And I know you, and I know your company, and you had nothing to do with any of that. How did that impact you guys? Yeah, look, it, we did everything I, that we could to stay away. And it was an industry 
that is misunderstood. While there was organized crime, um, nobody stood up to that organized crime. Not everybody in the garbage industry was, was a criminal or a gangster or even a bad person. Mm -hmm. And what, what is often misunderstood is that we were victims of organized crime. You couldn't go out and develop work, develop customers, go into other territories unless somebody was there to tell you it was okay. We didn't comply with that. We kind of took our time, a little bit here, a little bit there, and eventually uh, all of that caught up to us. I mean, we uh, challenged the system. So there were consequences to pay. I lost the building, I lost four trucks, we had death threats. Um, I went through an episode with um, Jerry Kobeka, who lost his son and son-in-law. Uh, called me up after they were murdered because they, they were testifying, they were wearing a wire and cooperating with the, the FBI and he called me up and he said, you know, I'd like you to buy my business. I've lost my sons. I can't do this anymore. You're the only honest ones in the business. Will you buy, buy my business? And the difficulty of that situation and going through that with him and his wife was that I couldn't pay cartel prices, so I said, Jerry, sell to them, sell to whoever wants to buy it, because they'll pay a lot more than I can. My work is not protected. And he eventually did that, but going through that process, I met his wife, whose son's name was Robbie. Um, she broke down and cried. She showed me bullet holes in the wall and talk, told me where her son was and where her son-in-law was. So um, when you go, when you say it's impactful, it's impactful in ways that yeah. um, makes you take a look at yourself and it wasn't enough just being in it and being good yourself. Eventually, Browning Ferris Industries and Bill Ruckelshaus's company approached me on going into New York City with them to develop the New York City market. Mm -hmm. um, Ruckel's house, if you recall, was um, the first head of the EPA. I had two stints with the EPA. He was with the Justice Department during the Nixon years and was one of the people who refused to fire Archibald Cox as the uh, special prosecutor and was asked by Nixon to resign. And he had one stint as the head of the FBI. Mm -hmm. He was an exceptional person. So if I'm listening, following along with the story, he was the key guy to get you out of that sticky he, position? Actually, which... actually, he put me into a stickier position. He oh. asked me because they, BFI was developing the New York City marketplace, and that was protected. It was the last bastion sure, of, of, of uh, the cartel. I'm in another book, which you didn't mention, I got a blurb and I was happy it was only this, <laughs> was uh, a book called Takedown uh, by Rick Cowan. Rick Cowan was a New York City cop who had infiltrated uh, the mob yeah. uh, and uh, found evidence, which they eventually used, that brought down the entire uh, uh, cartel in New York City. But Morgenthau, who was running yes. the investigation, um, had reached out to Ruckel's house. They had been associated somehow in the Justice Department and said, you know, unless there's competition, 
you know, we can put all these guys in jail, but they, you know, the cartel will they'll give it to their girlfriends, their cousins, their yeah, uncles, their aunts, or what have you, and it'll be reconstitute itself. That's so all. we need competition. Um, they didn't know the New York marketplace. I fit their profile, BFI, mm -hmm. and they asked if I would be their subcontractor. So while they were the contractors, I was doing the work. So what I'm hearing is that nobody really had your back. You were in there for your... You were in there on your own devices and your own we had mindset and skills had, and yeah, for the most part, they had um, you know off-duty policemen uh, following us around. But the fact of the matter, it's thin. You know that you're out there, uh, and there were many times in New York City. It's a nighttime business. So you're going down back alleyways, you know, to assess the customer's mm -hmm. garbage, there's no containers, so you have to give the pricing to the salespeople. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at any point in time, somebody could have hurt me had they wanted to. You know, I don't know if you're aware of this, but, you know, my, my background is a detective from New York City, and I work for Bob Morgenthau. And we worked on the Brooklyn Carding Company for years, the Granada Hotel, we had wiretaps, we, had, we actually had our own garbage truck. And we were following the garbage truck, waiting for somebody to throw a bomb in it because we were out stealing stops. Very, very dangerous time. Very dangerous time. The fact that you came out of it, Robbie Dono, unscathed is pretty special, by the way. One of the heroes, and I, just my mentality, I don't know whether this is true, but because the Quebecers had worn a wire, uh, the FBI learned how there was cooperation between the crime families and enlightened them. That investigation and the wiretaps from the mm -hmm. Quebecis led to the downfall mm -hmm. of the heads of the five crime families. Mm -hmm. We came into New York City just after that. So okay. the upper echelon had been taken down. And then you had everybody starting to right. testify against each other. So, so now you're trying to lead a, comp lead a company that's got this whole other facet that's a big facet at play. How in the world did you manage your, your solid waste company in that environment? How the hell did that happen? I mean, you had people who had to work. You had to pay the people. You had to worry about their safety. How did you do that as the leader? I've, been all, I've always been surrounded by good people. It's a family business. I have a brother-in-law who was extremely talented, Norman Taylor, uh, who was older than I am. He's like my big brother. Uh, is exceptionally competent. Uh, my cousin Tom was running the office. I was running around New York City. That was, uh, at that particular point in time, uh, the, the bulk of mm -hmm. my job. And then I, I do the villages and those other things that were part of it. And we did the gift of life. Uh, we were still doing the gift of life at that time and making, helping kids. And to tell you the truth, it kind of lent uh, a balance to your life. You, 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 on one side, you're sitting there with this fear. And on the other side, you have this extreme joy because you, uh, you know, you see a child come in that can't breathe, and all of a sudden they're running well, around. You're, you're a bit of an outlier in that many CEOs have that mindset that, of giving back. But what you've done is far beyond what many of them will ever conceive in doing. There's no question about that. So you're an outlier. And the fact that you were able to balance the devil following you and then the children coming to you 
It's just amazing. I love this story. I mean, well, I, could, I we am could, a Gemini. We could, we could probably sit here and talk about this all day long. <laughs> Gemini's have that capability. You've got the devil on one side and the angel on the other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I know. I talked to both of them. <laughs> so, Manhasset Rotary Club. All right. So, you joined the Manhasset Rotary Club pretty soon after you got involved with the business, yeah? 1970-ish? Well, as I got into the business, um, almost immediately, uh, my father was ill. He had cancer, uh -huh. and he was uh, gone a year later. I only actually got to work with him three months. My brother, Norman, uh, who I talked about, was the first one to see the signs of it. He said, you know, your father isn't right. You've got to get him to take a vacation. We're here. My father worked all right. his life. Yeah. Um, he had brought me to Rotary Club meetings from the time I was 14. And his lecture was, he used to take uh, us, I have two older sisters. When he wanted to talk to us, he'd take us for a ride in the car. We were captive audience, and he used to lecture me at these rotary meetings, after the rotary meetings. You know, whatever you do, you might be in this business, whatever business you do, you're going to earn your money. But you have to give something back to the community, because if the community isn't healthy, and he says, mm -hmm. your business isn't going to be healthy. So you have to give something personal back to the... So you went rotary because dad was a rotary member, he was, he and was, he introduced you to the whole service about friends, self and all of that. His friends invited me to the Rotary meeting. I think the, you know, I was 25 years old, and probably the closest in age to me was another guy that was like 42. And then right after that, another young guy who was a year younger than I uh, came in. Mm -hmm. And within four years, I was president, and he was secretary. He was fabulous. And that's the year that Grace came over with as the first child for the gift of life. Gonna, I was just going to ask you, as gift of life started at Manhasset Rotary Club, right. tell me about the genesis of that. Was it Robbie Dono had an idea one day and pitched it to Rotary, or was there other circumstances? The Rotarian, December 1973, Rotarian magazine had an article in it called The New Face for Margaret Rose. And the story was about a girl who had been attacked by a hyena on the northern plains of Uganda, and the hyena had eaten her face. She had no face. Mm. The Rotarians in Kampala had taken care of her for 10 years, educated her, took care of her, which I thought was astounding. Why would they do this to this nomadic tribesman? You know, why, what was the motivation for that? And I thought it was extraordinary, and even more extraordinary was this girl was so ugly that she had to wear a burlap bag on her face and they cut the eyes and the nose because so she, she was so horrible to look at and yet she wanted to become a nurse to give back for all the kindnesses that these men, at that time it was all men, had given to her. I used to sit next to a 79-year-old retired plastic surgeon, Dr. Calta Jerome. Um, he had written books on archaeology, had done diggings with King Gustav of Sweden, and I used to leave work early so I could sit next to him because he was fascinating. And I took the article because it was a request to reconstruct her face and put it at the lunch meeting on his desk and I said, hey doc, is there something that we could do for this kid? And he started orchestrating me, you know, he was pulling the strings, get the get the medical records, get this, get, we have to get a hospital. He started going through the menu, for lack of a better expression, of what we needed. 
he started getting his students involved that were going to donate their services. He got ill, went in for an operation, and didn't make it through the operation. Frank Rignanti was a new member of our club, and I was giving a report that now I'm kind of lost without Dr. Caltagirone about helping this girl. And Frank calls me over. Uh, we had donated a room in memory of my father when he passed away, so that's where I first met Frank. And Frank is, what are you trying to do? And he was the, uh, the uh, vice president of development at St. Francis. And after I told him what I was trying to do, he writes down on a piece of paper, you do this, I'll do this, we'll get this kid over here. I mean, it was pretty much like that. And he ended up getting the doctors, a doctor to donate the services. The Sisters of uh, St. Francis of Assisi donated the services. We had to get the airfare. So we're coordinating this. Isn't that how Rotary works? They're just such connections all the way across the board, if you don't. You just reach out for another Rotarian and, and stuff happens. Stuff happens. Well, I'm mailing letters to people. And at the time, unlike now, it took two months to get a turnaround. Right. And they were on it. They, it wasn't because it was sitting on somebody's desk. Um, so we finally had put a whole package together and sent it forward. It's actually a longer story than that, but I'm okay, yeah. Yeah, giving yeah, yeah. you the thumbnail. And I get a a nice letter thanking us profusely for our help that a doctor from a Rotary Club in Toronto, Australia had shown up in Uganda doing cleft palates, mm -hmm. saw Margaret Rose, and took her back to Australia with him in between correspondences. They had no other response to their other than us. Mm -hmm. They put in there, since they saw St. Francis Hospital as a heart center, the medical records of a five-year-old girl, Grace Aguaru, and said, since you've gone through so much trouble and you've had a heart center involved, would you consider a child with a congenital heart defect? So this was really in St. Francis's wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. We'd have to do one surgery instead of 40 surgeries. We had arranged for tutors, education for Margaret Rose. This was simple, six, eight weeks you know, do the operation, and so that's how we got into the heart business. When you look back after 46 years, at that moment in time, did not seem like a big thing. Mm. Look at how we've operated on 38,000 children since then. Since then. What happens if that doctor doesn't show up in Uganda, and we end up with Margaret Rose, we would have done something very special and very good, but it wouldn't have impacted 38,000 children. So Grace was child number one. Child number one. So did you have the logistics in place, or how did you build the logistics to make that happen, for her to come to the U.S., get her heart surgery, stay for whatever period, and then go back? How did you manage to do that? Well, we figured it out. A lot of it, the most important part for us at the beginning was St. Francis Hospital. You have to operate on the child. And getting her over here, she had to be diagnosed and to confirm what they, the reports right. that we'd had so that they can give a good surgery. Um, we put the father up in a motel down the street that was like a, a little more than a quarter of a mile away from it. It wasn't a terribly nice place. Sylvester was a gentleman and a British-educated man living under the thumb of Idi Amin, 
I mean, throw that into the mix. He didn't know whether his family was alive or dead, and coming to the United States certainly wasn't a positive. Getting him out of there was a trick all by itself. He was okay. He was a passport minister, so whatever uh -huh. they did, he probably covered his bases. But still, now you got people that from the newspapers thought that this was very unusual, and they're putting it in newspapers, and who knew what risks he was taking. Um, and he was here by himself. The other end of this that we hadn't thought about was the aftercare. And having seen the motel that we put him, put him and Grace in originally wasn't great. So I called my mother up because she lived close to the hospital. Um, my mother was a phenomenal woman, always helping somebody. Uh, there was always somebody living with us, it seemed to me, you know, that was down on her luck. And she was always for the, I mean, my, both my parents were, were great. And Frank was great. The hospital was great. That's what I mean. I've been surrounded mm -hmm. by very good people. And I called her up and I said, hey, mom, you know, I've got this guy here from Uganda and, and his daughter. She's getting out of the hospital. We'd like her to be in a place that's clean and safe. Would you mind putting them up? <laughs> She goes, okay. It's not, do I have to worry about medicines? Do I have to put this, that, or the other thing? Whatever it is, bring them here. We'll take care of it. And mm. she did. And I have a picture of her that I, I, I show all the time, her and Grace, and she's hugging Grace. And there's just this joy in her face and a joy in Grace's face. 46 years later, or many years later, I should say, Grace confesses to me that she doesn't remember me from when she was here at five years old. But she remembers my mother, oh. and she remembers the hugs, the affection, and she remembers my mother's pantry. She had never seen so much food in her whole life, and my mother's sitting there, here's cookies, here's this, and they hope. So a little kid remembers wow. that. That's an amazing start. Wow, what a story. Her father, is all, he always meets me when I go to Uganda, uh, Sylvester is there, and he's, he was so enamored of this woman living by herself, opening up her home to him. He had no way of communicating with his family, um, and his story is incredible. So Nobody a... wanted him to come here. Uh, Uganda was a British colony. The United States was thought to be second class. Uh, you don't want to take your, your children there to get help. Um, the, the entire tribe, his wife, nobody wanted him. And all the while he was here, um, prior to the operation, he had thought that he was going to go back with an empty seat on that airplane and have to face his family and his tribe. But he had, in his mind, no other option. When he met me at the airport, he became very concerned because... I was 29 years old. I looked like I belonged to Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young rather than a Rotary Club. He expected somebody to look like me now. And so he became very concerned until he went to the hospital. So you had told me earlier, and I referenced the book, Lady in Red. Tell us about the First Lady Nancy Reagan's involvement and what that meant to the organization. Well, we were bringing, uh, our initial model was to bring the children here. Mm -hmm. Now it's developing the programs over there. Uh, Dr. Balboni had told me that early on. That's what you really have to do is you have to make people capable, empowered, mm -hmm. empower them to help their own 
It took a long time to get there, though. Took a long time because everybody wants to bring the kids here. The other countries weren't ready. As yeah. time goes on, it became too expensive for the hospitals, you know, to really do this effectively and in any kind of meaningful numbers. And there was more receptivity. The, the other programs had grown to the, to the point where they could now consider taking mm -hmm. these kinds. So it's kind of every, everything had to evolve together in order to get to the point where you could do that. Mrs. Reagan helped out. Um, the president and Mrs. Reagan were going to Korea. And at the time, in 1983, we were doing a lot of Korean kids. Uh, Harriet Hodges was our point person over there. Her husband was in the Rotary Club and he was working for the State Department as the civilian liaison officer between the Korean Armed Forces and the American Armed Forces. Mm -hmm. So once again, the stars are lined up for things to happen, for good things to happen. Um, we had started doing the, these Korean kids, and one of our members from the Flushing Rotary Club, Murray Siegel, comes up with the bright idea. Our medical team was going over there uh, to diagnose the kids, to bring them back to St. Francis so that we would have good medical records. The president should stop and see our medical team because it coincided because of the good work we're doing. And I started to laugh. Murray, you know, the president isn't going to stop and see us. I mean, you know, he's got mm -hmm. things to do. Well, we took a shot. We gave it to Gary Ackerman, who was mm -hmm. a congressman from Flushing, and um, Harriet's husband, Carol Hodges, had some pull in the State Department, and between the two of them, um, Mrs. Reagan ended up meeting the kids. I always thought that we got a letter back from the president saying his itinerary was booked, which is what I expected, yeah. and congratulations and good luck with your good endeavors, that kind of thing. I never thought that he even considered it. When Sheila Tate called me up, to interview me for this book, I told her that story. Mm. She said, you have no idea how many times we changed our program because the president was trying to meet your team yes. over there. And I was shocked. I just thought that, and what ended up happening is, you know, Mrs. Reagan did, and, um, and the rest is history. She fell in love with the children. Uh, Originally, they were going to send them back on Air Force Two with the press corps. Mrs. Reagan, once she met the kids, wanted, to, wanted them to come on Air Force One. And again, we never realized how important this program was to them. Yeah. This was like... A, did did that happen? Those kids came back they, on Air Force One? They came back on Air Force One. I wow. got a call. You got to go to the my office. You got to go to the television. They're, you know, and there they are getting on the plane in Korea on Air Force One. And Harriet, being an army wife, had asked the Secret Service to allow her to bring the children onto the plane ahead of time so that it would get used to the mm -hmm. plane and wouldn't be scared and mm -hmm. would be comfortable. She taught them to stop at the top of the stairs and wave. And, wave. and, <laughs> and that's what they did. I mean, she thought of everything. She was very, very smart, very clever, wonderful person. So we had, we covered everything. We had people down in, in Washington at the White House, at the airports. I went and picked up the kids um, at LaGuardia. Uh -huh. um, 
And that moment, uh, there was more press on Rotary and Gift of Life internationally than any other program that Rotary has yeah, ever run. Yeah, I was going to say that. That was the best PR coup you could ever uh, have. And now we got, we had rot Rotary clubs all over the world asking us, A, how they can get their children here, and B, how right. they can get involved. And so we grew into that. So you've overseen this organization from seedling time to now being an international major uh, charity for children with heart defects. It's a movement. I, I have to say this, you know, people give me more credit than, than I deserve. There are a lot of people uh, who have been very key to this all along the line. And at different points in time, you have somebody in a batter's box with the bat that hits the ball and it comes through for the kids. But somebody's got to build the stadium for them to play in, Robbie. And that's you. I'm sorry. I'm not going to let you get away with that. Oh, that's you. I've you put fortunate. this in play, and you got the team together, and you're coaching the team on how to get better and better and better and better. So I appreciate your humility, but I'm not going to let you have it. Oh, okay. <laughs> so now you've gone international. Yes. So now that's a scope that most nonprofits ever get to. Tell me about how you operate, how you manage an organization of that size. And I'm talking not so much about the surgery, but the personnel and the logistics of how to keep that going. How do you manage that? I mean, you can't do it as one person, of course. So you have the management layers that you need to take care of all the different facets. Actually, there, we operate with basically two people right now. There's a CEO and the CEO's assistant. Wow. Who are, and again, I'll tell you that I'm fortunate to be surrounded by good people all the time. The CEO of Gift of Life International was somebody I met through the, my profession who worked for BFI, who was sitting in the car with me in New York City all the time we were developing that marketplace mm -hmm. during the tough times. He worked for BFI and was more of a government affairs kind of person, um, sales. He ended up being president of BFI of New York. Uh, at the time that he left the industry, BFI of New York was uh, a $54 million book mm -hmm. of business. A very, very competent, hardworking person. He works 150 hours a week. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. And obviously, our next challenge is to build underneath him and to build a real organization. We started to have a discussion about that. And that's the discussion. And, you know, there are many challenges to that. Yeah. But he and Brenda Small, we met uh, Brenda Small. We met uh, her, her daughter had heart surgery. Mm -hmm. And she was trying to help children in El Salvador by herself. Music for Hearts. She belonged to a Rotary Club in California, and Chad Everett, our national spokesperson, went to her club to do a program mm -hmm. on the gift of life. She got involved with us, and she, again, like Rob, you know, puts countless of hours. These are not, while they're employees, they're not employees. Their heart's in it. They, they right. would go through the wall for one of these children. Um, so the next step is so you're, you're, you're managing a network, if you will, 
of committed individuals who are willing to pretty much do what needs to get done. Right. So there really is no hierarchy per se other than yourself and, and Mr. Railman, is it? There, right. There's a board of directors. Um, we have a director from uh, the Philippines. Most of them are in New York, California, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Florida. Are they an active board? Do they take an active they're, role? They're active Rotarians. The base of this is, is the Rotary Club, so the, the platform that's allowed us to do this mm-hmm. without a huge staff is that you have a tremendous volunteer group. So we will operate, in a normal year prior to COVID, we were operating on maybe 600 children in India alone that were coming from places like in India or mm-hmm. from Africa. We, we, we operated on a lot of children from Africa in India at good hospitals, mm-hmm. uh, bona fide hospitals. So we've set up a network of hospitals and rotary clubs worldwide that are doing their own surgeries. In Lebanon, we're doing uh, over 100 children a year in Lebanon. 25% of those children are Syrian refugees. Mm. We operate on children in Jordan. Um, a lot of them are Palestinian refugees and Iraqi refugees. We operate on kids in Israel. We have a partner organization, Save a Child's Heart, which is another story. That started in Korea mm-hmm. with an American doctor who was Jewish and moved to uh, Israel, moved his family to Israel and basically copied the concept of gift of life because of exposure when he was in the army, started Save a Child's Heart, and now we partner with them on a number of different uh, projects. So now some of them have spun off from your concept, but now are coming back as strategic partners. Yes? We have a bunch of strategic partners, Heart to Heart, uh, Chain of Hope, uh, Save a Child's Heart, Uh, There are others, organizations that we partner with in a variety of different um, uh, projects. The concept being that, uh, and it's like the Rotary Clubs, and this is how Gift of Life International started. Each Rotary group had its own Gift of Life program. They could only do so much, but when you combine their collective efforts, Mm -hmm. now you can concentrate and like Uganda, yeah, you're able to scale it and develop a pediatric heart program now that is now self-sustained. Mm-hmm. We go to these countries, and in, we haven't been to a country yet that had a plan. So we provide the government with a pathway and the means to take care of their own. Speaking children. of providing, is there a standardized criteria for those children that you can help? Is there a line that says, we can't help you? Or is it pretty well, much all, all in all the time? We'll, we'll try and help everybody. The fact of the matter is that some kids are not operable. There are children that are not, not operable in circumstances where the team in place isn't capable yet. And so when we go in, the doctors are now bringing uh, or teaching them to do this. Mm-hmm. Then they teach them to do that. Then they teach them to that. And they constantly upgrading. And over a period of five to seven years, you'll end up, in the case of Uganda, their mortality rate last year was like 1%. We, are, we have become important to Uganda. Uh, I visited Uganda uh, last year with Rob to put a grant together with the Rotarians. We were there five days. On Sunday, we got there Saturday. Sunday, we sent an email to the Prime Minister, Ragunda, who knows us. 
He, he was the ambassador t uh, t uh, to the UN for Uganda and had been to a number of events. Mm -hmm. So he knew me and he knew Rob. He's now the prime minister. He made time to meet with us. We're doing a research and development R&D project on rheumatic heart disease. Once you get rheumatic heart disease, the only cure for that is an operation. But it can be prevented. It's not a congenital heart defect, which is what we started in. The doctor uh, from the National Children's Heart Center has come up with a way to treat that. It, this is Nobel Prize worthy so, stuff. So you've gone from being reactive to now being proactive in advancing the improvement of medicine right. for kids with rheumatic heart. That's amazing. amazing. There, is 39, there are 39 million people that have been impacted wow. or currently wow. have rheumatic heart disease. Wow. If this works the way we think it is, we screened 102,000 children in Uganda using the Ugandan mm -hmm. doctors and nurses. Behind Dr. Craig Sable is the brains behind it. We're just behind him. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm not doing the work. He's the one who came up Very with the close. concept. But we're supporting his efforts there because it can reach, right. it can prevent this. And if we put it in the box, the way I think that can happen, it'll prevent 39 million people Amazing. from getting this in the future. The fact of the matter is when you look at a health system like the one in Uganda or any of the developing countries, emerging countries. Have you had any other success besides Uganda? El Salvador uh -huh. is a success story. They, they're a legacy, what we call a legacy program. They don't really need us, they need funding, but they mm. don't need us. They're, they're, they, the they're healthcare the professionals there you know, it, during the time of COVID, where really? everybody else was shut down because their teams couldn't travel, those people went to work at risk. Now, isn't that interesting? Because now what do you hear about El Salvador? Not anything good. And meanwhile, you've got a whole heart program working there that's working on all cylinders. Amazing. Amazing. They were, we were told that that, that would not happen by pretty smart people. Mm. One of them was a Dr. Aldo Castaneda, who had been, who used credited to be the godfather of pediatric heart surgery. Mm. He was one of the first ones in it. He's now in his mid-80s and uh, late 80s. We had him come to uh, El Salvador to look at the program. And he said, I've looked at this program time and time again. It's not going to happen. And we had a three-day conference. At the end of the there was a He's a funny man. He's the kind of man that comes in the room and everybody knows he's there. He's an elegant man uh, and a good man. Um, when he sat down next to me after he told our group that this wasn't going to happen, I said to him, you have no future in politics, you know. <laughs> and he said, at my age, I have to tell the truth. And I said to him, well, when we're finished here, you're going to see that we can do this. That's I was amazing. being cocky. Amazing. At the at the end dinner, when we put all the pieces together, and we were just as surprised as anybody else. We were out there. Rob Railman orchestrated this, and he's a wizard. Uh, I was a scribe. That's, that's what I had to write stuff down. And at the end, we gave Dr. Castaneda an honorarium. I fumbled it in giving him this. I was amazed that a man his age was still out there doing things and wanted to... Uh, tell him how grateful we were that he would come out, you know, and he's still yeah. active. 
it came out, the way I was saying it came out that he was going to die any second, oh. and he's standing next to me at the microphone, and he finally turns to me and he goes, you know, you have no future in politics. <laughs> that is hilarious. That is hilarious. Robbie, we're going to need to take a small break now. Okay. Let the sponsors pay some of the bills, and we'll be back in a moment. The Ask a CEO Show is brought to you by Lorraine Gregory Communications, a full-service award-winning agency where experience matters. Visit them at LorraineGregory.com. And we're back with Robbie Dono, the founder and chief executive of Gift of Life International. Robbie, Gift of Life International has a worldwide footprint. So how do you generate the funds necessary to maintain and grow the organization and how do you use marketing and PR to achieve that? Well, a lot of the platform, or, or a lot of our fundraising is done through the Rotary Clubs and through the, the, the Gift of Life programs in various Rotary districts. We are very fortunate because the platform of Rotary is a worldwide uh, uh, base of people mm -hmm. that helps us in numerous ways. But in terms of fundraising, you take a group in another country and a group here put them together with a fundraising program, and whatever you raise, Rotary International has matched 50 cents on a dollar and sometimes dollar on a dollar. So we have the Rotary Foundation, which is probably the greatest foundation in the world, that has helped us provide surgery because we are combining an international, uh, uh, international partners. They want us to have other international partners, we were talking about other groups, Save a Child's Heart, Chain mm -hmm. of Hope, mm -hmm. uh, Heart to Heart, and other, other groups that we've worked with, and partnering with us to do to accomplish that goal. The idea for Rotary is you have to be successful in making a permanent change in the country that you're working in. So the development of a heart program is a permanent change and it's a dynamic step mm -hmm. forward for the hospital and for the country. Doing heart surgery is at this level. And while you may be concentrating on training those people, because they're there and they're now trained to do the exotic stuff, for lack of a better expression, that permeates down through every other discipline in the hospital and raises the entire hospital up and raises the country up. So now this all, this all requires <coughs> funding. Is the funding, the foundation, Rotary Foundation, the source of your funding? No, the or source. Is Gift the, of Life International responsible for its own fundraising? Gift of Life International does its own fundraisers. And for instance, uh, and we had to be clever in this last year uh, because you can't have your golf outings and you can't have your mm -hmm. dinner dances and the traditional things. We had a telethon on Giving Tuesday on Facebook, live streamed, mm -hmm. Zoom. We had entertainment and, and things like that. We raised $190,000. We are doing a Mother's Day telethon, and we're getting you know, people to uh, uh, come to, we have a following through Facebook, mm -hmm. uh, Messenger, social media. We've, we've, we've learned to use that better. I'm not gonna say that we're good at it yet. You know, the unfortunate thing is they have people my age that are, you know, it's difficult to learn. You know, Jerry Lewis did it long into his senior years, so 
I wouldn't say that crayon uh, is any hindrance to do any of this stuff. It's not a hindrance. It's that you know, younger people seem to do it quicker. But oh yeah, it, well that's it, it, you know the learning curve is there, and we're we're learning to do this better and better. And um, I think that we have to develop international corporations much better than what we have. There are corporations. We are our new development project is going to be in Bolivia. Uh, they have. The government looks like it's going to back the program. The hospital's committed. They have uh, doctors and nurses that are at a level that could easily move into this, and they have an engaged Rotary Club. Those are the four legs on the stool, so we're going to go there to mm -hmm. develop that program. Now, I spoke to Michael Dowling of Northwell, and Michael Dowling says, culture eats strategy for lunch. Tell me about the culture of the organization in terms of human culture. How is it? Is it, is it people are, are just out for the cause, or, or is there a, some coming together, some relationship building of the people who are involved? And how do you keep that going? You know, it's a continual education in, in, in terms of keeping things going. Uh, my... my uh, I always talk about St. Francis Hospital had the culture to begin with. The culture is service, giving of oneself. The history of Gift of Life in my family with St. Francis Hospital, actually my family was involved in St. Francis Hospital long before that. Mm -hmm. If you don't tell the new people that come in that history and re-engage them, then you've lost them. So you have to continually teach that culture to new people. The older people, and I, uh, we just came out with a book on the gift of life, and the name of the book is I Am a uh, Art Dealer That Does Heart Surgery on the Side. It's a takeoff of um, a quote that I was quoted in the newspaper. I'm a garbage man that does heart surgery on the side. And it's a group of short stories by people who are Rotarians in a variety of different uh, backgrounds. I'm a family therapist and do heart surgery on the side. Fredley Kaplan tells her story about the gift of life, and it's just short chapters and stories mm. about the children. We are in the kindness business. It's people being kind to each other. It's stewardship. Um, in the prologue, I talk about the value of life. I wrote the prologue and how each life is so unique and so different that at conception, um, a DNA molecule is formed. You're the only one with your DNA molecule out of seven and a half billion people. Think about that. You're one of a kind. You have, you're right. the only one that has your life experiences. Right back at you. you. I told you that before, you're one of a kind. Without the seed of Robbie Dono, Gift of Life International does not get the success it has today. So there's challenges every day, all along the way. But the value of the life is the culture that, that the people who are involved with Gift of Life yes. are involved. Absolutely. They sit there, and whether it's spoken or just acknowledged by uh, routine, these people are beautiful people, each in their own way, value that life. If I bring them a way to help a life, they'll go for it. 
And most people are pretty good. I, I find that we live in a good world, not a bad world, because if you just give people the chance to help, most people are pretty good. People want to say yes. People want to say yes. It's about showing them the way. I don't care whether it's an individual or whether it's a government. The governments, if you're running a government, you got so many things helping, you know, going on that somebody talking about heart surgery seems to be, but if you sit there and you say, this is the path, all you have to, all you have to do is fund the first hundred operations. And you're basically, if you're smart about things, or we're smart about things, and politically astute, you create a good parade and put the political people in front well, of it. Doesn't it, become, doesn't it become an ROI? Think about it. Yeah. You fund that hundred surgeries, and what's the return? A thousand, a million more. Right. In the case of Uganda, they, they could very well end up making world history and getting the cent be the center of attention of all African nations because they're the first mm -hmm. ones to develop yeah. this to the point, in particular, if this research and development works. So you're growing this thing. It's all very exciting to me, actually. I, I know the history of it, and it's very exciting to where it's come to. But back again to the challenges of every day. How do you deal with the challenges? And they're thrown at you. I know you're on the phone like perpetually, right? Because people are coming at you from all different directions. How does Robbie Dono channel that energy to be able to handle those challenges? It, it, I don't know. I, it, the fact of the matter is it's just this is what's presented you today. This is the job that you have to get done today. You know about tomorrow that in order to get to a bigger goal, you have to take care of today's business. So for me, it was about putting one step in front of the other. So whatever the challenge is today that we have to face and whatever problem it is that we have to fix, you fix it today. So, and you fix it so it's not twice as bad as tomorrow. And that goes back to the urgency. If you wait till tomorrow, there's twice as much garbage on the street or there's twice as many children. Interesting analogy. There, there is a child, the children are born every day with a congenital heart disease. We're not going to run out of uh, children. The real challenge, and people get exasperated at the size of the job. I want to take care of all the children. There are 1.3 million children born each year with a congenital heart defect. At our top, we were taking care of 4,000. Our highest year was close to 4,000. We haven't got a batting average. 93% of that 1.3 million have no access to cardiac care. People will say, you know, it's impossible to get there. If you take that attitude, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. If you say, I'm going to get there, Maybe you're not going to get there, but you'll get to the next level. Right. And that's what really we have to do. So the challenges for us today is how do I build a board of fundraisers? How do I now perhaps reach out for somebody who's a Bolivian background, who's philanthropically involved, who's got good connections mm. and can help us raise money in Bolivia or the Philippines, where we're mm. doing a lot of work? or Haiti, or Uganda, or any of the other countries, and start developing a, an international uh, board of companies with international business interests in some of these emerging mm -hmm. countries. Mm -hmm. It's amazing what you guys are doing, amazing. What does rest and relaxation look like to Robbie Dono? Uh, this is rest and relaxation. <laughs> yeah, look, at, um, 
this is motion at rest. This is what it is. This is where you, 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 you while you're expending energy, you're getting energy. It, it's, it's circular. It isn't, it isn't just going one way. The path of my life has put me in some good places. It has put me in touch with some very good people. It has put me in a situation of doing some compelling work. Uh, it has uh, made me live a joyful life. And in that joy, even with all the challenges and some of the aggravations that may come, there is peace in that, you know, you're doing the right thing. So I, I don't know that I could call this work, um, work. this is joyful work. Right. You know, if my life had been just picking up garbage, and I used to say that as a joke, I hope God had something more in mind for me to be the best garbage man in the world. You know, I, I mean, it's somehow or other, that doesn't Well, you found it. You, you found what he had in mind. I'm still trying to figure out why I'm still here, but it's interesting that you look at it that way. Come on, God, give me a break. Let me know what I'm supposed to be doing. You heard that long, long, long ago, and you've taken it for a hell of a ride. So, okay, so we could be here all day long, and I'm going to have to start to wrap this down a little bit. So our show is basically a show for CEOs and those on the way to the corner office. And I ask all my guests the same question. What's the best piece of advice you ever received, either personally or business or both? Hard work. I, I, I don't think anybody gets to the corner office without hard work. Again, I go back to what my father taught me is appreciate the people that are around you. You're, you're only their boss in, in theory only. Yeah, you're as good as the guy that's working for you. So take care of them, be fair to them, respect them. Respect employee, respect for employees, I think is more important very often than money. Than pretty much anything, yeah. And you know, I can't tell you how many times people used to come up to me and boy, your company is great. You do a great job picking up my garbage. Well, I don't pick up your garbage. But the guy on the truck does. And, you know, you sit there and you be respectful to them. Right. A little humility goes a long way when it comes to that. You, like, we're 25,000 square feet here. And when I show up in the morning, I go around the whole place. And whoever's here, I say good morning to. Why? Because I need them to know I respect what they do. I, I appreciate what they do. And they're part of my team. And I have to tell you, 30 years into this, that works every time. People love to be acknowledged and accepted and respected. So, Robbie, I'm going to start to tail off here. Okay. So I want you to tell the people how to get a hold of the gift of life, what they can do for you, if anything, in terms of monetary or help or anything else. You have the floor. You can contact Gift of Life on the web. We have a, an active website, www.giftoflifeinternational.org. There's donate buttons on that. My favorite and what I go to a lot is the Facebook page because there's a story on the Facebook page every day of some kid getting operated on it someplace in the world. There's a donate button there. There's the local Rotary Clubs, certainly in the New York area. Most of them are involved in some way with the gift of life. Rotary, to me, is social capital. It's what builds our communities and our world. You know, joining Rotary or becoming part of Rotary programs is extremely important in any one of a number of different levels. So that's important. 
Also, if your companies or you're a CEO and you're watching this and you're doing business in any one of 84 countries that we're in, or you know of children that are in need in any country that you're doing business in, we're there to help them. We don't care uh, that it's without prejudice, without ethnicity, religion. We take care of color. We take care of everybody. Uh, so if you know of a situation, we'd be happy to help. It's just another kid that, that uh, we can help and another family taking the burden of, of, of the thought of losing right. their child away from them. And certainly in terms of the corporations, it's a good way to be a good corporate citizen in the, in the places that you're working. You know, do we have any sense, and I don't want to put your feet to the floor here, but do we have a sense of what the per capita cost is overall to help one of these kids? Just a ballpark number. A ballpark, we, I use the number $5,000 saves a child's life. Our average is significantly lower than that in those countries that we're working in. But we've been saying so that, we've been 20, saying five thousand dollars for twenty-five years. Right. I'm sure the audience would like to know that it's considerably larger than that now, and that's where we really need your help to to make it much more self-sustaining, much more substantial. We can open up more uh, centers in different countries and things like that with the appropriate funding. We're doing surgeries in some of these countries. The cath procedures at, at uh, $1,500 to $2,500, depending on the country. Uh, the top, I think, we pay for in, a, in another country is $10,000. In this country, if you wanted to put a number to that, it's, it's over $100,000. So bringing a child here is a non-starter. When you talk about taking care of 4,000 kids at $100,000, you have a big organization. Um, your dollars, so that you understand this, because of the matching grants and putting them in the matching grants, and the in-kind, all the doctors that work for us are donating their services. So every dollar that you put in is about $15 of services. So if you put in $100, it's like putting in $1,500. If you put in 1000 it's like putting in 15000 So we leverage the money very well through the foundations and the grants and the, and, and the in-kind contributions of the healthcare professionals. We didn't touch on them. They're phenomenal. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you, Rob. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank, thanks Thank for you having very me. Much. Really, thanks. So that's a wrap for today. Don't miss an upcoming episode of Ask a CEO. Uh, you can find us on our YouTube channel at Greg's Corner Office. Uh, we're on a podcast pretty much everywhere as Ask a CEO. And if you like what you see, please share it, like it, and spread it around. Thank you for helping us build an audience. Much appreciated. That's a wrap on another Ask a CEO interview. We hope you enjoyed the talk. We'd love to hear from you. Visit gregscorneroffice.com, click the Ask a CEO tab, search your favorite listening app, or view on YouTube. Click the subscribe button and don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook. Until next time, goodbye from Ask a CEO.